This is Manifest Zone, the podcast that explores the breadth and depth of the world of Hebron. I'm one of your hosts, Wayne Chang. I'm Keith Baker. I'm Imogen Jinjiao. And in this episode, we'll be opening up the lab and taking a look at Artifice in Hebron. Welcome back, everybody, or welcome for the first time if you're listening to us for the first time. Thanks for listening. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's nice to be back. Uh, Happy New Year uh, for those who haven't said that too. Is it? Um, <laughs> okay. Yes, yes, oh, it is. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, I mean, uh, if you're not listening to to this, this is uh, this is the beginning of 2021 for us. Um, and if you're listening to this far in the future, um, yeah, <laughs> look at your history. We're textbook. glad that you're still alive. Yes, we're glad that you're with us. <laughs> uh, a couple of housekeeping items before we uh, we get started. Um, we are again sponsored by KB Presents, an imprint of Together Studios. And uh, if you want to check out Together stuff or KBP stuff, um, go to the website. And you can take a look at that and uh, and and see from from that. Um, also, I, I just want to throw a special thanks. I don't know if people actually go to the website and see this, but uh, thank you, Joseph, for who does all our timestamps. Um, he does it because he gets an advanced copy and listens. <laughs> uh, but we really do really appreciate the work. And uh, if you don't actually listen from the website, um, you don't get to see some of those notes um, that he does and, and takes for us. So, Joseph, thanks very much. Thank you. All right. So today we're talking about artifice. Uh, we're talking about the artificer. We're talking about something that was introduced um, in uh, you know 3.5, um, and you added a completely new class to Dungeons & Dragons. And um, we've got a couple of references here. Uh, Keith has written a series of articles about you know arcane science and arcane arts. Uh, and arcane history. I, I think there's one more coming. I'm not there's, sure. There's one more coming. It may still be a little bit, but on industry. There you uh, go. But yeah, it's basically a small novel about uh, the state of of arcane magic in Eberron. Keith says arcane. Keith says small um, small novel. Um, each of those articles is about ten, eight to ten thousand words. Yeah. Um, and if you you look at Wizards' sizing, um, that's about uh, ten to twelve pages. Uh, per, so that's a forty-page book there without art. Um, just so everybody knows. Um, but we also talk a lot about this in exploring Eberron. There's on page twenty-nine where we talk about artificers uh, specifically, and of course, the artificer was introduced um, in Eberron. So again, it was reintroduced in Eberron in Eberron Rising from Last War. So we've got a whole section there. But it was also added to Tasha's. Uh, Cauldron of Everything that we talked about a, a, a few months back. And if you haven't had a chance to, I, I, I would actually encourage you to look at it. It's actually a very interesting book. Um, and it was sort of reintroduced to the wider audience of all of D&D in there as well. Um, so that's kind of basically some of our basic um, references. And we'll be referencing some of those as we go along here. But I think Artificer is one of the mainstays. It's one of the defining elements of the mechanical elements of when you look at at um, Eberron, but maybe for the people out there who are not as familiar or don't understand Eberron, or maybe just haven't looked so closely, what is an artificer? So an artificer, uh, you know, I would agree with you that it's it's one of these sort of iconic concepts of Eberron along with the Warforged. To me, those two things together uh, sort of add a lot of the flavor of the setting. And an artificer is someone who... Uh, works with magical energies and magical science, uh, but who does so primarily through using tools. Uh, they're sort of a magical engineer or inventor. In uh, the you know our sort of modern sense, it's the the Tony Stark or the Tesla. Uh, that rather than the wizard who just sort of wields pure magical power sort of with a word and a gesture. The artificer is someone who creates magic items, usually you know, temporary for a situation, imbues power into objects, and basically works with magic through the use of tools. I think one of the things that really defines the artificer, and actually... Mm-hmm. Why it sort of finds why what we're talking about as sort of the the one of the iconics for for uh, Ebron 
is it introduces the idea that magic is a complex system, but is one that can be decoded and harnessed and used over and over again in the same way. I, I know that that is sort of a basis for arcane magic and wizardry um, in Eberron, but that was never the case in overall D&D. So when you introduce, when we introduced that, or you introduced that in Eberron and added a class that was like, well, there's a way to do certain things, like create magic, like obviously 3.5 had a lot of magic item creation. That was all encoded and codified into this class. Yeah, and that's exactly the point, is that one of the core ideas of Eberron from the first page description was this idea that in Eberron, magic is a form of science, or at least specifically arcane magic is a form of science. Uh, And that... In certain previous editions, you know, you take Forgotten Realms, which, you know, is the mainstay. It was still generally implied that you have all these really powerful wizards uh, like Elminster, but somehow they aren't part of industry. You know, that they're, they're sort of champions. You know, basically it goes back to Gandalf and Lord of the Rings, where sort of wizards are these powerful individuals and magic items are just these treasures, you know, you find. And with Eberron, we very clearly wanted to say, no, this is a form of science. It is used by civilization. People like wizards are exceptionally good at it. Uh, But magic items are something that are created uh, and that this is a thing that people work with in a scientific manner. And so the artificer was, was definitely, you know, we already had the wizard, but we wanted someone who really felt like an engineer. And especially because magic items are a part of D&D, we're like, well, who makes those? Who uses them? And uh, that is that's sort of that core idea of where the artificer came from is that inventor and engineer. And, uh, you know, when you look to the original um, first design of the artificer in third edition, it was much more based on the use of temporary magic items. Um, An artificer didn't just cast spells as others did. They used what were at that time called infusions. And basically everything, they had a much more limited spell list and all of their spells uh, had to be imbued into an object. Like if I was going to cast enhanceability, Uh, I wouldn't just cast it on you. I would cast it on your belt and I've made you a temporary belt of, you know, giant strength, essentially. Um, They had a number of unique infusions that didn't just mirror spell effects and uh, that were very flexible. So one of them was called weapon augmentation, and you had armor augmentation as well. And both of those let you temporarily give a suit of armor or a weapon uh, the enchantments that you could make, you know, normal magic items. I could temporarily just make your sword into a sword of dragon slain. And this just used the mechanics associated with magic item creation, where, you know, a particular ability would be given, essentially, I forget the the precise thing, but, you know, a certain modifier. This would be a plus one uh, equivalent ability. And and so part of it really was, it was literally saying, well, I'm just going to make my sword a flame tongue sword for this fight. And uh, that did grant a lot of flexibility, but it was still very concretely tied to that magic item creation system. The second ability they had that was very distinct and unique to the concept, you know, very different from how a wizard works, uh, but very important, you know, to me was uh, what was called spell storing item. And that basically let a wizard create a one, let an artificer create a one use wand with a single charge of any spell of up to third level. So it was limited in how powerful it could be, but you could you could do anything. You could make a, a spell storing item for curing uh, damage because the original artificer could not in fact heal, but they could heal by using spell storing item to make a healing item. Uh, the main thing about that process is it was 
dangerous. You basically had to make a roll. The higher the level of the spell you were putting in, uh, the greater chance that the spell would fail, that you wouldn't make what you were trying to do, and that it could actually blow up. So it was definitely, it added both this immense flexibility because, of course, the key to both of those things I've just described is that they require the player to actually know all these options. I have to know all the spells. Uh, but it also added complexity and potentially this this concept that maybe your thing could fail. I think when you, when we talk about that, I, I know a lot of people maybe have not, not played uh, 3.5. Um when you translate that into something like fifth edition, where we've streamlined a lot of the rules and there's not a lot of, um, so one of the things right. Keith said is, is is absolutely correct is if you want to be able to cast any third level up to any third level spell, you need to know every single spell from first, second, third level. Um, that's a lot of spells, especially if you're using anything expanded. Um, that's a lot of things to know. Yeah. And it creates a, a class where there's, a, like you said, ultimate flexibility where it's like, I can, you know, magic items were so important in third edition mm-hmm. that I can create almost any magic item for you to use, for me to use or for my for my party to use. And now I have to know the entire magic item list. Yep. I need to know all the spell lists from one to three so that I can use my powers. And you're a, and it's also a support class, right? So right. You, your job is, maybe not primary damage or or tank, but you now have to do the ultimate support thing of trying to support support the rest of your thing. So you need to know how their powers work and what the best way to use that is. It was a complicated, um, it was a time-consuming class to learn um, if you wanted to play it well. If you wanted to just, yeah. if you wanted the very cool stuff to do and sort of that concept, great, you could. But to, to really to really dive into it, right. there was a lot of stuff you had to know. <laughs> well, and, and the thing about it is that it really had that level, though, of if you did, if you were that kind of player, I will say I played an Artificer uh, in my first Eberron campaign I played. I was a Warforged Artificer, and part of the cool thing about being a Warforged Artificer is you could infuse uh, your own body. It counted as a suit of armor. Uh, so you could do things, uh, all sorts of useful things like that. Uh, and for me, I love that sort of point of you're just in a situation and you're like, well, what would be the perfect spell to have right now? Well, I'll just put that together. Um, the thing that was a catch on it, though, is also a number of the artificers most useful effects, including spell storing item actually burned experience points. Mm-hmm. And because that's how magic item creation worked then as well. And part of what actually made the artificer sort of unique and better at making magic items than other people is they got what was called a craft reserve, which was essentially a little pool of bonus experience points that you could use to make magic items because the wizard could make magic items as well, but they actually had to spend experience to do it. And that, you know, is not an ideal sort of system to have a a class that is burning its experience for standard effects. Yeah, I don't know about you folks, but I don't mm-hmm. think I ever knew any wizard player ever take that option yeah. in a third edition game. So it really was kind right. of a breath of fresh air to have that option on the uh, the artificer and actually use all those those Right, because once you had the class reserve, then it was a, this resets every level. So mm-hmm. you want to use it, yeah. you know? So that was a big deal. Uh, I will say that then what happened with fourth edition is fourth edition basically took this initial approach that sort of all the classes essentially at a fundamental level work the same. You know, they were moving away from the idea of the fighter and the wizard working completely differently and every class used powers, you know, and they were just different kinds of powers. And so because of that, the artificer fell into the same category. It was more, you know, where in third edition, it was a whole different style of using magic. Uh, in fourth edition, it it was more sort of unified into the the arcane camp, and it became more of just a fundamentally an arcane flavored support class. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not that it was a bad class, but it just didn't have that same sort of unique flavor. You didn't have that. I can make whatever I want. Um, it was a healing class, which again in 
third edition you could do through spell story and item, but it wasn't just a default, uh, you know, thing that the class was exceptionally good at. And so the the fourth edition artificer wasn't bad, but it just felt like a very different thing. Yeah. Uh, think, whereas, um, sorry, I was I was going to no. say I uh, I never actually played a three point five artificer in a campaign, but I did play a fourth edition one, um, and. Yeah, as you say, the, the the sort of the the flavor of its of the way its magic worked, at least you know, by my perception of a player, wasn't so different as you were saying, because just because of general fourth edition design constraints. But on the other hand, it sort of found its identity or found its niche by um, sort of creating things in the moment to to put down, um, sort of you would put down zones or you would put down things that do things onto the battlefield. Um, so I think, I think that to me, I was thinking, and so correct me if I'm wrong, would you say that the artillerist artificer in fifth edition is sort of drawing on that inspiration? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it, I mean, certainly... I can't really remember which supplements or Dragon Magazine some of this stuff appears in. But yeah, there were certainly a few sort of summoning uh, powers where you would put down a construct and then that construct would do things. Um, I think the one that I always remember was one that's an arcane trampoline or springboard or something, <laughs> um, which was so very rarely ever useful, but it was good fun to just, you know, reach into your MacGyver's bag and pull out a, you know, a springboard. <laughs> well, and, that's, uh, and I do think that's that's the fun of the artificer is mm -hmm. that that basic idea that it's not just the wizard who I have sort of memorized this thing that we need, but the idea of it when it's at its best is this the MacGyver element. The mm -hmm. I can make what yeah. we need. Now with fifth edition, um, part of it again was not wanting to go the full three, five route of, of essentially creating a completely different way of spell casting. Uh, because, you know, fifth edition is generally, you know, part of the general design goal is to be more streamlined and to be uh, less complex. So in making the fifth edition artificer, it does cast spells. Uh, but part of the point there, and so we don't call them infusions, uh, but what it does require is that you need to use a tool as a spellcasting focus. And part of it is this is really about putting a lot of the flavor of the class onto the game master and the player rather than the rules. So rather than making a whole different kind of spellcasting, uh, we're just telling you okay, but keep in mind that your spell effect is being generated because you've made a thing that, that creates it. Uh, that if your artificer is using alchemist's tools to do their effects, that's because you are mixing up a little instant effect potion. Uh, if you're using Tinker's tools, that's because you are creating some kind of, you know, dragon pistol that is breathing fire on your enemies. And the whole point is, mechanically, we don't make that follow a whole different set of rules, aside from saying that you need the tool. But from a story perspective, we're asking you to think about, okay, when I do this, what am I actually doing? I think one of the things about that is people have are having a. I feel like I, I've seen a lot of conversations where people are having a hard time wrapping their head around it, mm -hmm. um, especially when you're using tools. Now, if you're using arcane focus or you're using the power through one of your infused uh, infused items, great, everybody gets that. It's the one when using the tools that's getting people getting confused, and it's interesting because they're. Sometimes they're trying to think of mechanical ways mm -hmm. to do something magical, right. and this is one of the things that I found very, um, very interesting was that you know they're like, okay, well, how do you deliver? You know, here's this thing, and it's going to deliver a potion. It's like, how do I get the potion there? Part of the artificer's powers is to bring to life the 
inherent magic of an item. So there's nothing to say, and I honestly believe this, there's nothing to say that this potion you mix in the air can't deliver sure. itself. Yep. Right? <laughs> or this, um, so one of the things that, uh, uh, one of the first uh, artificers I played, I played a, a, an, an artillerist, mm-hmm. when I put in my equipment um, ball bearings. Thousand ball nice, bearings. Nice. If you have D and D Beyond, you can click down a thousand ball bearings. Okay, yeah. so <laughs> what I said was each of these ball bearings um, contains an incomplete uh, magical inscription. Yep. And when I'm casting a spell, I basically use a tool, complete the inscription, put the last few lines on it, and this thing flies off and does something. So yep. for um, for fairy fire, it basically jumps out of my hand, or I throw it in the air. It travels to this point and explodes in a uh, in a, a a shower of, of sparks. Yep. Um, if I'm doing magic stone, that's the easy one. If it turn mag- you turn it into the magic, magic stone. stone. Exactly. Or catapult even. Right. Yeah. And no. I said, mm-hmm. you know, as, as we go forward, it was, it was easy because I was like, well, now I'm an artillerist. I need a staff, something like that. And it's supposed right. to be made of wood. I said, okay. Part of the ability was that the staff is made of a, a, a stack of, ball bearings and it's just kind of <laughs> staff. And every, time, every time I fire one off or fire a spell off, yes, I'm using the staff, but it's one of them ball bearings firing off. And when I use my um uh, uh Elders can uh, is it Elders Cannon? No. Uh what's the little thing? <laughs> yeah. Uh I think uh, Arcane Sidearm, Eldritch Cannon. I think the cannon uh, is the animated I, one. And I the sidearm that's little, yeah. yeah, that's a little um if you ever watched um, uh, Big Hero Six, yep. with the little like machines, yep. oh, yeah. you know, yeah. it's one of those. It's it's that thing. It's just a it's a bunch of them like done up and and walk around. So it's like, you know, I I, I forgot what it marked it off. If it's destroyed, I can't. I think it's like twenty of them. But it was basically that thing walks around and it fires energy mm-hmm. from it. Yep. So I I try to, I, you know, while I do like like I. You know, you do like the mechanical thing, or it's like, oh, it's going to fire this or whatever. I really like the fact that this is still magic, right? And what you're doing is you're just using that inherent magic of something, um, whether it's a piece of wood or it's a couple of things strung together, or it's that creepy, you know, Blair Witch, you know, doll thing, right? And you walk over to your enemies and explodes or hugs them, and you know, does a whole person. I, I, yeah, I don't so, know the cat's person, right? But. <laughs> So, I mean, a couple of things about that uh, that I think are very important is that is the sort of key to me is when I describe it, uh, part of it is how do you use a tool? And one of the things to me is I don't feel the tool itself has to be the focus. That is to say, it's not like I am casting my spell with my hammer. What I do say is I have to have the tool to cast the spell and I have to use the hand. So that's the key point to me with your ball bearings is the point is uh, – it's it's what I just described where I said, like, I might have a tinker's tool, uh, artificer, and I might say, well, what I've actually done is created this, this basically this dragon gun. And what I'm actually doing is blasting people with bolts of fire from my dragon gun. But I need the tinker tools to keep the damn thing working because it is always falling apart. And I'm making these adjustments and I'm doing this thing. And then I'm going to use my flaming, you know, uh, you know, burning hands. <laughs> Uh, because I blasted them with that, or especially woodcarver's tools. If you're using woodcarver's tools, what you're actually using is a wand or a staff or a rod. It's just that you can literally carve new symbols onto it to change what it does. And part of the point of that is to consider that really what we're saying with artificers is they can make magic items but that they can also produce these temporary effects, basically, that they can do that happen quickly, but that aren't sort of uh, preserved in a way that other people can use them. So the point is, they're using wands, they're using potions, they're using scrolls, they're just doing them in this instant way. So one of the other ones we talk about in Exploring Eberron is the idea of calligrapher's tools. And that if you're an artificer using calligrapher's tools, you are a scroll maker. You know, that basically scrolls are a concrete piece of technology in the world of Dungeons and Dragons. It's just that a normal scroll you create and it lasts forever until someone casts it. As a sigilist, I'm just literally tracing the same symbol that would be on the scroll, but it just happens instantly. It's not preserved. 
And uh, so that's where you get your pen being mightier than the sword is I'm just tracing. I might trace it in the air. I might trace it on a little piece of paper and throw it at someone. I could trace it on a ball bearing. The ultimate thing to remember is that mechanically you're casting a spell. It just happens. You don't really have to worry about it. All this other stuff is just for fun. And with that said, I was playing an artificer recently where I was playing a Maverick, our class from Exploring Eberron. And part of what I really enjoyed about it uh, was actually I had guidance. And every time I cast guidance, I'd actually say, well, here's the thing I'm making that is going to give you a bonus. Because the effect of guidance is the person gets a bonus on their next roll. And so I'm saying like, oh, you're about to sneak? Hang on a second. I can make some sound dampening jelly that I can put on your shoes. Oh. Or they're going to make a persuasion check. I'm like, oh, this cologne I've mixed together, it is totally going to charm them. And and basically, it's the MacGyver thing we were talking about. But it's just saying, yeah, it's just guidance. It just works. But have fun with it. What are you doing that is giving them that bonus? And, uh, and that's a lot of what defines artifice in fifth edition is it's just saying we didn't make completely new rules, but you can add that flavor, you know, that you aren't just casting a spell, you are being MacGyver. And what does that look like? I think there's something to, you know, you you can draw a a difference in the approach there between what you might do on the fly. You know, you, you are the MacGyver, you're, you're putting together an arcane device at the last minute. But there's also a lot of fun to be had with considering how you do your downtime, how you do your long rest, how you do your preparations. Because, you know, you you can, you're preparing your spells is building something perhaps a little longer term. So, you know, in, in that scroll writer example in the calligraphist, you know, during your downtime is, you know, when you're doing most of your con- transcriptions. If you're using calligraphers tools, you might be surveying the local area, mapping out um, the ley lines or various points before, you know, you, wh- when it comes to the actual spell casting, you break out a sextant or a compass or something, and, and that's how you use your tools. But I think my, compared my to artificer the- doesn't yeah. have a sextant, but okay. <laughs> I, I, okay. Sorry, I couldn't resist. Uh, But no, no, I mean, that's exactly right. And that's the point is that artificers in preparing spells like clerics can choose from the entire list. Uh, But again, the point is what is what that looks like is, as you said, you're making the things that will allow you to produce that spell effect later. And it can be a lot of fun to think about what that looks like. And so very much, again, when I was playing the Artificer, for each of my base cantrips, uh, I I did say, like, okay, I've got Told the Dead. Well, that's like a little death ray that I built. Uh, whereas, again, for Guidance, I would make it up on the spot. But, you know, you can say each of these effects you're producing, what is the thing you've made that lets you do it? Or, Wayne, as you were saying you know, there it doesn't have to be a tool for each thing. It's this concept of these multi-use ball bearings uh, that that's back. The ball bearing approach is essential what we're talking about with the scroll effect. You're you're using ball bearings to deliver scroll effects instead of writing them on paper. Uh, but I think that's great. So, um, so that's a long ramble about just the basic concepts of, uh, of the artificer. Uh, where would we like to go from here? Well, we've talked about the artificer in general, and I think people are getting a good concept of that. But what what was it that I guess what was it that made Ebron this platform for? I, I kind of I think we kind of got into it, but we didn't. We kind of we, we veered away from there. What was it that that it was it was important that Ebron have an artificer, other than just saying, "Hey, this uh, the wizards do it." Well, it really was that idea that um, that it is part of that it is is science, uh, and that magic items in particular are part of life in the world. Because the thing again about the wizard is they can cast the spell, but they can't hand it to you. And we wanted that idea that this is a world where magic items 
are actually part of the economy and industry. And well, then someone's got to be making those. And uh, that that just sort of made more sense. And that this was a world where you ought to have that kind of inventor or scientist. Whereas the, uh, you know, I sort of like to say it's almost like the, uh, the artificer is sort of an engineer building things. And the wizard is almost more the equivalent of like a coder where the wizard is just directly sort of channeling this power. And essentially, I know if I invoke these particular principles, this effect happens. And the artificer is like, well, that's great, but I can't give that to Bob. But I could infuse that power into this object and I could give that to Bob. Or if I take more time, I could create this magic item you know, and give that to Bob. That it was saying that this is a world where it's important to have that knowledge of how to infuse magic into things in addition to just the wizard's action of being able to produce a spell effect. So I certainly put wizards and artificers in the similar sort of corner of the world of they are both, especially in fifth edition, the two that I would define as the sort of the people using arcane science. Other classes can be described that way, like particularly the bard could be described as sort of a dabbler in arcane science. Uh, but when you take characters like the warlock and the sorcerer, part of the point is they don't really need to understand what they're doing. Like their powers are, can be gifts, their powers can be inherent in the case of a sorcerer. They don't really, you know, they may flow from the same power source that a wizard is using, but the sorcerer doesn't have to know what they're doing. Whereas both the artificer and the wizard are essentially scientists, that they understand this knowledge. And frankly, that sort of goes to the idea of they're both intelligence casters. And so to me, the wizard and the artificer, they are doing things very differently, but they still essentially have a common respect or understanding because they know that they're using the same principles. Whereas once you bring in a sorcerer, a cleric, a druid, they're all doing things in a very different way. Right. And I think it really kind of speaks to the point that... Um, the artificers, at least in Eberron, are the ones that are really driving the social change as well. Yes. So, you know, I, I'm trying to think of an example of a, of a modern technology, say the internet. You know, your wizards are the ones which developed perhaps, you know, ways to, to speak to each other, to share data over vast distances. But the artificers are the ones that developed, you know, the mobile phone that puts it in everyone's pocket to access it at every moment and cause that that cultural revolution um, well, and electricity you and know it's, well, sort, yeah. of, it's <laughs> yeah. sort of like saying a wizard's idea of electricity is well i can blast you with a lightning bolt you know or i can do something cool with it mm -hmm. and the artificer is saying okay but wait a second if we make a generator you know yeah. this is just the beginning you know the artificer i i definitely agree it was that point that we wanted magic to have an industrial aspect mm -hmm. and that meant we wanted someone who worked with it sort of through tools not simply through that sheer will and arcane knowledge thing and and that comes back very much to what you said way early on uh wayne about it being a support class of the original artificer again everything they did was to imbue effects into something the the artificer didn't have any spells like firebolt they could do it by spell storing item but again spell storing item was a complicated process they'd be more likely to uh generate their offensive actions by enchanting a weapon like as an artificer i was mainly using a crossbow that i would turn into a crossbow of whatever slain uh, but that same thing, I could do that to someone else. If I wasn't a particularly good frontline fighter, it could be that I just enchant a fighter's weapon. And so that original artificer was very much about the I'm the person who makes magic items, even if this magic item only lasts for 30 minutes. 
So, I mean, let's move away a little bit from the player character mm-hmm. and get into the sort of the factions and the things about Eberron. Let's talk a little bit about artificers as a, a DM tool. Mm-hmm. And specifically, because in 5th edition, we don't talk about how magic item creation works. I know there's rules in, in Xanathar's for it, and yeah. those are optional, so they're downtime rules. Um, but that again, that kind of puts it into the background, is what does an artificer look like what does a, a non uh, an NPC or even a mage right artificer look like in Eberron then? Well, that's a, a key point that you just uh, mentioned. There is that again. One of the core concepts of uh, Eberron is that player characters are remarkable, and that people are making magic items. That doesn't mean there's legions of artificers out there. That the idea of when you are an artificer, you are Tony Stark, you are Edison or Tesla, uh, that you are someone who is not just making things, but you understand you can make breakthroughs. Um, And part of that ties to the idea that, again, the majority of magic items are made by the equivalent of mage rights, by people who have a specific set of skills. But essentially, if you looked at it uh, from a purely mechanical standpoint, part of what mean, an artificer means is when you prepare spells, you can choose them from the entire list. Well, that NPC artificer might only have three things that they can do. They can't just suddenly say, today, I think I'm going to make a floating disc because they don't know how. Um, so MPC artificers or mage rights, part of that point is they aren't going to have the full flexibility because that flexibility, that MacGyver aspect is the part that makes the player remarkable. There's also the general idea that what makes House uh, Kenneth stand out, what lets it dominate is basically eldritch machines and stationary things, tools, that Kenneth essentially does have factories. And that what a factory is, is a structure created. I forget what we called them in third, but there was a name for these in third, like eldritch forges or something. Not not the full creation forge, uh, which is what's used to create the Warforged or other remarkable things, but just basically a tool that allows a specific magic item to be created faster and less expensive, you know, at a le- uh, lower cost. Um, and so this is the idea that Kenneth doesn't produce things the same way that you do as a player. It is using a more industrialized system that relies on larger quantities of dragon shards and whatever, and is made to put out 10 of these a day or, you know, whatever you have as a player, you're the person making a computer in your garage. You know, you're not using industrial techniques. You are jury rigging. You are, you know, Tony Stark building an Iron Man suit in a cave. Um, and the point is that you are capable of doing things that the NPCs just can't, that they are not as innovative as you, but, uh, but that they can produce them in greater quantities, uh, at more reasonable rates. So when we look to the factions in the world that are, are doing this, so, you know, who is producing the magic items, uh, the biggest one, of course, is Kenneth. And I know some people say Kenneth and, you know, well, you know, do what you do. But uh, I'm I'm stuck in my ways. Uh, and so they are the ones that are producing the most, the highest quantity of items. But again, the idea is that it's not like the guy who produces, um, you know, the self-polishing sword or whatever could just decide to make a flame tongue tomorrow. It's that they are using an assembly line and a particular set of skills that lets them make this particular item. Um, House Jurasco, you know, produces most of the healing potions, is what we've been saying. And they just have an assembly line for healing potions. Um, someone else want to jump in here? Because I've been, I've been blathering. <laughs> I suppose the thing we, we, we kind of ought to, to highlight in terms of House Kenneth is that at least I think as far as most players and most campaigns are concerned, House Kenneth are going to be sort of the face of Artifice on Eberron. Yes. They're like they're by far the most 
um, prolific faction of artificers. They're by far the most powerful politically and magically, uh, at least on a sort of an everyday um, sort of sort of. Yeah, and there's a second yeah. important thing to to keep in mind there that that is correct. They are the the face of artifice, if you will. But it's important to understand that Kenneth is also to a large degree the face of industry. Mm. And that part of it is they don't just churn out magic items because let's face it, even with common magic items, magic items aren't that common. Uh, part of Kenneth is they're also just producing finished goods you know one of the things we said in one of the books i can't remember which is that where you get the standardized prices of equipment in the player's handbook is because that's the prices kenneth has set that you know kenneth is churning out long swords kenneth is making wagons uh that it's the same principle that they essentially have what amount to arcane assembly lines or at least superior construction techniques because they have the sort of potential of things like fabricate you know that they are simply able to produce mundane goods more effectively than most people and so that is the point is they are the face of artifice but they're also the face of industry mm -hmm. And I think um, with, go on. I was just going to say with with Kenneth as well. Um, I think that one thing to bear in mind, especially if you're a, a player character as an artificer, um, is that because House Kenneth are the ones sort of setting the prices and setting the expectations, um, is that that means you really want House Kenneth on your side. Um, yes, and there's this idea that uh, sort of House you know, fabricators of mundane or magical means are going to want House Kenneth certification because if they don't have it, how can you trust that this magic item they've made isn't going to blow up in your face tomorrow? And um, that is and that is a very important point just to call out of a lot of people say, well, how do the houses have this power? Wasn't, uh, uh, you know, why don't, don't people sort of rise against it? And part of it is because Actually, the houses do regulate things and set standards. If I go to a blacksmith that has the Kenneth seal, that means I know I'm getting goods of this quality. Mm -hmm. If I go to just some random blacksmith, I have no idea. And I have to say, why doesn't he have the Kenneth seal? Uh, I, I think it's one of those points of when we go to the store and buy aspirin. Well, why do you think it's actually aspirin? Well, that's because someone has made sure it is. And with magic items, it's that same point of, I know if I buy a Kenneth magic item, it's going to do what it's supposed to do. If I just buy an item from Joe the wizard I've just met, am I sure it's actually going to work or it's going to last or, you know? And so the houses have just really built up that brain recognition. Mm -hmm. I think one of the funny things, actually one of the things that Keith told me before was, that Jurasco's uh, healing potions are branded. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> so basically, you know, you could have your favorite flavor of healing potion or healing draught or whatever, and you know, this one's cherry blast or whatever. Exactly. <laughs> and 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 that's part of that thing that is is sort of fun of saying this is a world where artifice is institutionalized is to stop and think. Okay, so if if healing potions are a known commodity then start adding that level of detail. How do I make, you know, what makes my healing potion the, the new cool one? Uh, so yeah, definitely, you know, get your code red healing potion. Uh, I think that's one of the things is that when you talk about mass production, these things are all going to be the same. Mm -hmm. Especially if it's magical mass production, um, they're going to be identical. Assuming, you know, I, and I'm not talking about a, um, an airship, which is, handmade whatever i'm talking about an everbright lantern or the, the the lanterns along the street or your long sword they're all going to be the exact same i mean right. if there's a flaw in the original design they're all going to have that flaw but if there's a you know stamp in the original design the maker's mark in the original design, they're all going to be the exact same like those kind of things are cookie cutter mm -hmm. and yeah it sounds very you know non-fantasy but you're, you're talking about a magical re a magical creation process you and, know 
and and part of it too is is you're right is it sounds very non-fantasy but when we get to the fact of the matter every long sword is the same <laughs> every long sword does 1d8 damage it costs you know 25 gold pieces it you know and this is the point of saying well that's because that's the can of standard it could be that, you know, if you just bought some random crappy longsword from some other guy, it's only going to do one to six damage because uh, it's not up to canon standards, you know. The um, third edition had that concept of masterwork, which wasn't yes, exactly. like all magic, but it was, uh, you know, not the mass produced. Maybe you could use that as your Absolutely. bespoke construction. Uh, no, yeah, I, I completely agree. And, and I think that that's an important aspect of common magic items too, which is the idea of this has a magical effect that just doesn't actually make it sort of fully considered, you know, magic in quotation marks for damage resistance or things like that. And so just that idea of, oh, well, this sword does not rust and mm-hmm. it cleans itself if you get it bloody. You know, like that's a cool magical effect. It's just not that powerful, you know. Uh, just quickly run down other other sort of groups. So Kenneth is the main one, and it is important, therefore, that Kenneth has split into three factions because that does weaken its power somewhat. That before the last war, it was definitely the most powerful house. And by splitting it, you at least say, well, there's this internal rivalry that that sort of draws it down a little. Uh, another very important faction for Artifice is the Twelve. Now, the Twelve is the institution where all the houses come together. It's the sort of United Nation of the Houses to work on projects of common interest. And part of the point is this is how you get a lot of the cool things that essentially cross over houses, like the airships. You know, couldn't have been done without the Zill binders, but they were still innovated by the Twelve because they combined the work of Kenneth with Lirindar. Um, the vault network that the Kundarak uses uh, included the work of Orion, because after all, Orion is the one who deals with teleportation. And it had Kenneth, because that's the one who was able to figure out how to put all these things together. So essentially, the 12 is about both sort of it's more innovative and it's more about saying how can houses work together and leverage their powers in sort of unexpected ways. And the fact that they do and that they can is really what holds that together and what gives the houses that sense of unity because there is a value in them doing that sort of thing. So just keep that uh, in the corner in our other side we have the Arcane Congress. And the Arcane Congress was essentially established by Galifar as sort of, well, we need some kind of counterbalance here. You know, we need uh, a, a force of magic that is embracing arcane science essentially for the nation rather than for profit. Um, that is complicated now by the fact that it is specifically on D.A.R.E., but it is still the idea that this is both the greatest institute of learning and also one of the general ideas is that there was a time when most of what are now the spells of the mark, the only way you got those was through the dragon mark. And that the Arcane Congress was instrumental in figuring out, well, how can we make a version of Nock that anyone can use? Because we see it over there that Kandarak Dwarf is using it. We've got to be able to do replicate that effect through science. And so the Arcane Congress has been tirelessly sort of working to say, how do we do the same things, but without dragon marks? They are not as, as widely or well-established as Kenneth, uh, but it's still, this is where you can get sort of somewhat mass-produced items that are not coming from the houses. Um, yes, Wayne? I think one of the things that would really set these two apart is you talk about mass production. One of the things that Kenneth does, obviously, is the mass production. It does the daily thing where these people are the more specialized ones. If you go and learn uh, from the Arcane Congress, like you learn Artifice from there, right. you are not, you're almost, you're almost back into that, you know, apprentice, like a master and apprentice relationship that, you know, where you're not teaching it like a university class on apprenticeship, uh, on artifice, you're, you're basically 
here's a teacher, here's a couple students. We're learning how to do this. You're le- figuring out new techniques. You're teaching other people. Whereas Canada is like, this is how it works. This is how we do it. This is how we program the, the mass mach- machine to do this. And you're going to pour the energy in to make sure this comes out correctly, that kind of thing. And and I think that is a very good way of, of calling it out. Of It's the same way of, well, the Arcane Congress makes siege steps, but they don't have the huge sort of industrial capacity of Kenneth. So it is more like, oh, okay, if you're doing this, you're going to be hand carving in those symbols and and things like that. There is more of a uh, direct relationship and a little more of a, we're still figuring out how all this stuff works, Mm -hmm. you know, whereas Kenneth has more of that. This is the process. You're just going to work on station 52 over there because we know how to do it. Um. I will say that the Arcane Congress is an important part of it is these individual wizard circles. And I did just do an article about those. So, uh, you know, go check out uh, wizard circles at keithbaker.com. And part of that is the idea that those can almost be seen as like little departments. You know, they're little local groups that are specialized in working on teleportation or, you know, working on illusion. And it is about that sort of what you were just saying, Wayne, of of uh, figuring out that your wizard has ties to one or, or artificer, because again, they're the same. These are circles studying arcane science and being able to say, well, I'm not just, uh, you know, just a wizard. I'm a wizard with ties to the Guild of Endless Doors, and I'm determined to figure out teleportation you know, is a way to give you a little bit of a more sort of specific and concrete tie to the world. Uh, Or again, as game master, to use those circles as groups that could act as patrons, that could be funding uh, expeditions, or could be very interested in something that one of the player characters has created or found. I think one of the the kind of one of the final things as we kind of wrap up this topic, you know, um, there's two things that we, we've talked about. We've talked about Corvair. We've talked about, to be honest, mostly human um, human uh, innovation, and yeah, that's one of the things about D and D. Humans are, have that adaptability, <laughs> but we're we're also talking about this is not a world that's popular. This is not the world for popular by humans, right? Um, you know, and we're not talking about. I, I don't think demons really had much artifice in them, but we do know that there are several races before humans got to humankind got to Corvair that had the ability to do artifice, and we're talking about the Dakani. Mm-hmm. We're talking about um, we're talking about giants because you know giants were were arcane user arcane casters and, and artificers. And, you know, we're probably talking a little bit about dragons as well. So let's go back and maybe we'll go reverse order. So let's talk about the Dakani first here. All right. Uh, so, I mean, part of the idea, again, from the start was magic is a science. And what we wanted with the Dakani was to say this is an example of how a different civilization has approached this in a completely different way. And so one of the things we decided is that the Dakani do not have divine spellcasters. They they just don't have clerics. They don't engage with faith in the way that produces that. Um, and we ultimately decided that to a large degree, they wouldn't have wizards. That what they had is bards, that bards were the, their central spellcaster. And then, you know, to a lesser extent, the Dashore the forge adepts who are Dakani artificers. But even there, we wanted to focus on the idea that the things that Dakani did, uh, both, you know, sort of at a superior way than even humanity uh, has currently done, are experts at metallurgy, experts at weapon and armor smithing, that basically like they are the people, Adamantine has always been said to be an ally. Well, they're the people who figured it out. You know, that they are able to create uh, sort of tools of unparalleled strength, sharpness, durability, um, and that essentially weapons, but that they weren't relying on the same sort of tools, uh, you know, wands and such 
And and so that was sort of where we're going there is saying, yeah, they do have artificers. And among other things, they can produce artifacts. You know, you had from the very beginning, Galdur, the uh, the Horn of, uh, you know, uh, the Mighty Dirge and various artifact weapons uh, that were created by the Takani. But it was that whole idea that, again, just because they can produce those doesn't mean that they create a staff of power because that's just a form of the, the science that they haven't gone down. I think it's uh, the the sort of the Dukani and the Dashaw. I I think they really open up a segment of thematic space where you can explore the sort of mystical or mysterious aspects of artifice in a way that you know contrasts with House Kenneth. So as you're saying, it's you know you're you're looking at ancient techniques, ancient artifacts that are being rediscovered or um right. you know so your house Kenneth artificer uh, uh discovers a Dakani ruin uh discovers a suit of armor or a uh, a sword that is impossibly sharp and it mm-hmm. opens up this this you know how is that done uh how can i discover more about this technique or what are the consequences of uh sort of unleashing this ancient technology back on the world. Um, and I think it's easier to do that with the Dukhani sort of closer to home in Corvair before you start sort of looking further afield into Zendrik, which I think brings in more of the bigger picture elements, like say the Warforged or uh, Elemental. Well, things. At, at the same time, I'd say that in my opinion, the, the giants are a great, faction for the I'm messing with science and I don't understand the consequences. Mm. Uh, because in part, the giants messed with science and didn't understand the consequences. Uh, that, you know, we we can count the moons in the sky for proof of that because we're missing one thanks to them. <laughs> and and so to me, the Dakani were very focused in the kind of things that they created. The giants are where we get to, first off, there were multiple giant cultures specializing in different things. And we know that they did essentially mess with powers that they should have better left alone. And that that is ultimately what ended up in causing the destruction of Zendrik is because the the dragons were essentially like, if we leave you alone, you are going to to essentially blow up the planet. You know, you're going to break reality and this is our fault. And we're just going to wipe this all out because we just don't want to deal with it. Anymore. <laughs> um, but that the, the giants were messing with the planes. They were sort of channeling new sorts of power. They were mage breeding things, although the Dakani may have been mage breeding things too. So <laughs> that's another point. Um, and, and so to me, the giants are, are the perfect example of that oh, you can find something that could inspire you to create something new, but are you sure you should? Because maybe it has effects we don't know about because giants were stupid or at least reckless. Um, Um, Yeah, so that's Mm -hmm. sort of, so the law talks about Orion's folly in the sense that um, the dragons gave the giants magic and then, Oh no! Like, oh, what have we done? Now, um, now, bear in mind, it was an oh no! What have we done over the course of tens of sure. thousands of years? Like you know, it's not like the next day they built yeah. you know the atomic bomb. But, but I yeah. think it kind of it, it goes to show with the, the the sort of the theme behind giant artifice is to keep going bigger, to keep escalating, right. and eventually you get to that point where you know you have this world ending world threatening planes destroying moon breaking um artifice that's you know i think that's the high level gameplay right there and and i think that's an interesting point is when you come to the whole part of this is because as dms we want the players to be able to find cool things if the coolest things are just made by kenneth then why go on adventures and so we want there to be things out there that are big and powerful and and more than we could do that but that's where it gets interesting to say okay but why aren't why aren't people using that today like maybe it wasn't a great idea maybe there are consequences um and this comes to the point of you know does magic have essentially pollution 
maybe it does. Maybe we just aren't using it on a large enough scale to generate it. And just as a point, this is one of the most common in-world explanations for the morning is that all the war magic being used essentially just built up to a level that uh, that essentially you can almost think of it as a greenhouse effect, that maybe we just were using so much magic that we just generated this, this destruction. And so maybe we better stop that. And the point is, that's just a theory, but it could be true, you know, and likewise, that ties to the Arini dislike of necromancy is what they're saying is it's not that you casting this one necromancy spell is a problem, but if necromancy was used on a wider level, it would be a problem. And we're trying to make sure that doesn't happen. And so that is part of the thing to do is in thinking of magic as a science, Don't forget that it can have the drawbacks of our technologies and things like that as well. And it may just be that we haven't had to deal with them because we haven't been taking it to the, you know, it's, it's highest level. You just have to remember a lot of uh, part of the lore does say that, you know, Kenneth explorers found schemas, Mm -hmm. uh, on Zendrick, you know, giant schemas, and have been using them, like the Creation Forge, uh, have been using them in our modern day Eberron technology. Now, so. I, do think, <laughs> I do think an important thing to call out on that, though, and, and I do in the articles, if you read the articles, is that it is generally not the idea that people just went to Zendrick, picked things up, brought it back, and started using it. So, like, uh, the Zill learned elemental binding from Zendrick. That's not that they just went into a Sulatar ruin, picked up a fire sled and said, oh, we can make this. It's that they saw it and said, if this can be done, we are going to figure out how to do it. And so the idea to me is like, well, the giant schema didn't just make a creation forge because the creation forge requires the mark of making and the giants didn't have the mark of making. It's that they were able to adapt it and create something that is their own but that is drawing on the principles of this older thing. And part of the point of that is that it means you need someone with a particular brilliance, such as hmm, a player character artificer to make these kind of connections that if you just randomly bring some old schema back and toss it to Morgrave, odds are that they're going to say, I don't know what to do with this, but maybe you could in your downtime figure out what to do with it. And so that's just the point again of it's just saying magic isn't necessarily ancient magic isn't necessarily just sort of slot and use incredibly simple to just translate uh again but it's that exceptional people can find ways to duplicate it or replicate it or or you know innovate uh based on it. And they Definitely don't look at the warning labels. Definitely. No, the, they, they put the, the warnings after the spells. You know, they really should put them first. Uh, but I will say one other thing since we are, you know, I know, running out of time. Uh, you mentioned before, Wayne, that fiends don't really make, you know, don't really go for artifice. And on a large scale, that is true. But part of it is that doesn't mean they don't create magic items. It means that the overlords generally created magic items by literally just infusing them with their own essence. That uh, Raktol Kesh doesn't understand arcane science, but he could still make the blood drinking sword of doom because he's just imbuing it with the essence of the hunger of war. And so part of it is uh, demonic magic items are usually where we get things that essentially don't work with science but that can be very powerful and dangerous. And that sort of has that. I almost think this is flipping back to um, the aliens franchise of that's where you get the, the wizard saying, Oh, I get what I'm doing. And it's like, no, you don't. Cause this is not the science you were used to working with. Um, but also any discussion of demons and artifice would be amiss if we didn't bring up soul Katesh, the keeper of secrets. And, She is literally the fiend that embodies the terrible things that can be done with arcane science. And uh, part of her whole thing is inspiring wizards and artificers and giving them terrible ideas. And coming back to our factions, there was a faction tied to Soul Katesh called the Court of Shadows. 
And this is where if you want your enemy artificer who has nothing to do with Kenneth and nothing to do with the 12, well, they could be part of the Court of Shadows and just have been given some crazy ideas by Sul Katesh and be making something that is just going to be a really bad idea in the end. Um, and so, so that's that sort of idea is it is a fiend who's using science as a way to cause trouble. Well, that sounds like a great yeah. place. <laughs> that's a great topic actually that we should explore in the future. <laughs> yep. Uh, so yeah, you know, that, that gives, uh, again, we could, we could talk about this for another hour, I'm sure. Uh, but I think, I think that gives a basic covering of it. Anything else you guys want to hit? No, I'm I'm uh, I'm now worried about the next artificial. <laughs> or excellent. You can see me. I'm doing the you know excellent. <laughs> you know, uh, Mr. Yeah. Burns. I make evil plans. I I do want to throw out one other just possible artificer type as a player character. Just throwing out that one of the types of artists we didn't talk about uh, is that again, like any class. Artificer is a set of rules for producing effects, and the default artificer does this through arcane science. But you can play with other ideas. So, in fact, uh, the the artificer I was recently playing in Fifth Edition, my Maverick, uh, was using what in Exploring Eberron we call magical thinking, uh, which is the idea of it's more the Fey artifice. And that they don't use arcane science. They don't give a dang about science. They just use logic that somehow works when they do it. And that I'm going to make these shoes out of the sound of cat's paws. And you're like, cat's paws doesn't make any sound. And I'm like, well, I just wove it into these shoes. <laughs> and uh, so that is another path you can sort of take is, is the artificer who is doing something that clearly isn't science. And yet somehow it works when you do it. <sighs> wonderful well i suppose right. we should uh finish up on on that yes <laughs> on that Fair um so thank you all for listening um be sure to visit our website at manifest.zone where you can find subscription links to our show post comments on our episodes or, or leave a review um on there or uh, your favorite podcast service um so please let us know what you think um, join us next time as we talk all about gnomes. Trust us, it's going to be great. And until next time, keep exploring. <laughs>